This episode is brought to you by Zeratech Software Development. Are you a company whose commitment to excellence demands effective software tools? Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help build or enhance your technological systems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. You can find them at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Hey guys, today I sat down and talked to Dr. Stanley Vitton. Stan is a geotechnical engineer, a civil engineer, an environmental engineer. He taught for many years at Michigan Tech, just recently retired. He worked in the professional field or the private field, I should say, at Shell Oil Company. Uh, He's also passionate about glacial geomorphology. We get into all of that. I really enjoyed this episode. I hope you guys do as well. Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. Stan, thank you for coming in today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, as they always say. Right, right. Uh, I want to talk to you about two things. One is your professional life in the geo world, which you gave me all the terms and the degrees that you had gotten into and how that played into your Shell oil company timeline. But also you said you get pretty excited and passionate about a lot of different areas, maybe outside of your technical field, but maybe ties into it, but not necessarily within your degree. Uh, Can you get into some of the degree history that we were just talking about? Certainly. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'm going to start from the from the ground zero. Okay, let's do that. Uh, well, I grew up in this area uh, on the Vitton Brothers Potato Farm uh, up on Pontiac Road, and and uh, anyone that's ever farmed up here knows you get to deal with rocks. And one of my first uh, jobs as a young man, I should say, young kid, seven eight years old, was picking rocks in my dad's field so they could plant the potatoes. And uh, so I started started learning about how those rocks got in the field. Hmm. And uh, of course, I grew up on Quincy Hill, and the Quincy Mining Company was there, and as young kids, uh, uh, it's not how it is today, but uh, back then, uh, you had your breakfast, went out the door, and as long as you are home for uh, dinner, people were happy. Yeah. And so we just had our free play of the Quincy Hill, and all hmm. the mining buildings, and the, uh, I'll have to admit that, uh, yes, we went in them, and, and played in them and did quite a bit of things uh, 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 growing up. So you know there was that mining aspect, and then my um, uh, my uh, grandparents came from Italy, uh, came to Calumet, worked in the Wolverine mine. My Italian side, my father's side, and my mother's side is Swedish. Yeah, uh, they came over. Uh, my grandfather came over. Actually, great grandfather came over, and uh, as a young man, ended in Detroit. Heard there was jobs. And, Keweenaw ended up working for the Calumet Rail, Calumet Heckler Railroad, ended up becoming superintendent of the Calumet Heckler Railroad. So I sort of got that mining, uh, geology uh, area mm-hmm. uh, as a young young boy. Right. And uh, so then I uh, ended up, uh, time to go to school, you all go to Michigan Tech, and I started in geological engineering. 
got my degree in geological engineering, bachelor's, stayed on, got a master's in uh, mining in the area of rock mechanics. Uh, actually, my first project was going to be in the Centennial Mine hmm. uh, when Homestake was here trying to dewater it. And uh, unfortunately, that uh, only lasted a week or so before they shut down that project. Hmm. And uh, I ended up working on the Cleveland Cliffs uh, Iron Company mine. Um, uh, some of the issues they were having with their uh, crushing and grinding. Uh, so then I went to work for Shell Oil Company. Uh, I had hoped to work in the hard rock area, but I ended up working in coal uh, for Shell and then uh, for about eight years. And then in the mid-'80s, Shell, uh, uh, commodity prices were very low, uh, and they looked into their crystal ball. And they said, look in the future, and they said they're going to stay very low. And so they got out of the mining area. So I had to find something to do. And so I went uh, to the University of Michigan, and I figured, well, I, ge geological engineering and mining didn't seem to work out. I'll, I'll get into civil. So I got a PhD in civil engineering and then graduated. Went to the University of, uh, of Alabama for three and a half years, and then uh, had a couple offers to come back to Michigan Tech, and I finally took one and came back here. And I've been at Michigan Tech 28 years in the area of civil engineering, working, teaching mostly uh, geological or uh, geotechnical engineering classes, primarily uh, things in rock engineering, foundation engineering, soil mechanics, uh, that sort of thing. So yeah. that's sort of my degrees and my, my background. Right, right. And we'll dive into it. And, and But just briefly, you're right in the process of retiring as we speak. I am. Yeah. I, I retired technically last semester, the spring semester, and uh, I'm technically done. Yeah. Um, um, uh, um, I handed my papers in yesterday. Yeah, crazy, crazy. But thinking back to when you said you were a young boy picking rocks in a field, um, I've done that on a small scale, probably not as long as you have. Uh, and there's been a lot of other people that do as well. And at the end of the day, it's just rocks for them. What about you? Do you remember why you actually wanted to dig further and say what's behind these rocks and how did these get here? Oh, very, very good question. Uh, you Once in a while, you'd uh, uh, see this uh, flat, greenish looking uh, odd thing that didn't look like a rock. And then you realize it was float copper. Okay. And uh, uh, you'd run off. Uh, we use what's called a stone bolt, which is a... It's uh, a sled. You 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 pull through the fields, hmm. but it stays on the ground, so you can roll the rocks on it easily. But but you'd find a piece of float copper every now and again. And, and uh, uh, my my dad and his his uh, brother uh, have found a couple of very nice pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, ones at the Oakland University Museum. Ones down at the University of Michigan. Um, but we would have people come up uh, looking for float copper. Um, and so that was one thing. The other thing we did as kids uh, living on Quincy Hill uh, was that we would, in the morning, go off to the rock piles with our sledgehammers. Uh, we didn't know about safety glasses back then. Yep. And uh, we <laughs> would um, find rocks that are sort of heavy, and we'd sort of beat on them, and sure enough, a little bit of copper. And we would, uh, we would basically break down a number of larger rocks and get pieces of copper and put them in a little pouch and we'd ride our bikes down the, the lookout at Quincy Hill and there'd be maybe seven, eight, nine kids and we all have our little boards and we put our copper on it and then when a tourist would come in and park we actually had a quite an established system. <laughs> we had to take turns and you got the next one and the next one and uh, we would uh, sell those little bits of copper 
And then we would go pedal back up the hill to a little store that's no longer called Mr. Finley's um, and uh, spend all our money on soda and things that parents would probably not like you to do. Right. And then we'd go home. Yeah. So that was another thing, learning about the how copper got into the rock and, and how why it was native. We didn't know that that was a unique thing. Right. Uh, but uh, again... It, you know, it was sort of tied to the geological mining world growing up, uh, even though we were farming. Okay. So. So, but for you, was it that you got excited about copper and you got excited about these rocks and then later it became to be where you were really thinking about how did this all come to be? Or at a young age, were you actually physically thinking about the rock formations and the history of the earth and stuff like that? Because again, I'm saying me at that age was not a thought. I found copper, I picked rocks, did not enter my head. Where did these rocks come from and where did this copper come from? So I'm just curious about you particularly. Was that later where those questions came to be or do you remember pondering those questions as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old? Well, I, I, I uh, you know, it's very hard to go back to, to yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I would have to be speculating here, yeah. but I, I, I think that, that um, you know, I, I tell my wife that I, I think every kid should have to pick rocks. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is, is that uh, we, we had a tractor and a stone bolt and some crowbars and a shovel and a chain and, and you're on your own. Yeah. And you pull that sled through the, the field until you pick the big rocks. We would plow it and these rocks would pop up and you'd go in a, a basically a line pattern turn and come back and look that sort of thing and and uh, uh the you, you know you you come you know if it was a small rock head size you can roll it onto the thing if it got really big you had to get your chains and do that sort of thing and get it get it pull it out of the field one of the the, the questions that i ask on a doctoral if i'm on a doctoral committee um you have to come up with questions for the candidates mm. to, and one of them is I, I i talk about a large field and the farmer may have say four or five rock piles that are sort of randomly distributed in the field itself and i ask him why how would the farmer decide where to make those rock piles and of course they, <laughs> it's an odd question right um and uh, and of course the answer is a very simple one to a farmer and that's where the rock you couldn't get out right that's where you put the rock pile yeah and uh they they finally get the question and get the answer yeah um but uh, back to your point uh, well how would i think about again you you you're pulling the just a vast vast variety of rocks uh all different shapes and then some are you know one once in a while not often you'd find a piece of float copper um and you started wondering right how this all got here yeah and uh um, I'm, I'm not sure I actually back then and say eight, nine or 10, but I definitely when I was in grade or middle school, high school, when you start understanding science and stuff like that, I think it became more of a question to me mm-hmm. how things got here, especially when you find a large piece of float copper, one that, uh, we found one piece. I think it's the one that's at, the, at the Oakland university. Uh, that was, uh, it wasn't tonnage-wise large, but it was probably eight feet long, probably five feet high, maybe a foot thick. Okay. Um, but you got to wonder how that got there. Right, right. 
And then the other thing is, is playing on the rock piles as kids and trying to find copper and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I think it piques your interest in, in, the, in that area. Um, but it's one I chose. It's one I went into. Right, right. So when you went into school for that, it sounds like at that younger age you knew and maybe it planted the seed at those young, young ages, then middle school, high school, you were actually pondering the deeper questions of how did these get formed and how did this get here? When you're going to school for that, was that, were you pursuing a passion or were you just going to school because this is what you should do and this will be a viable career for you? I think, uh, that I actually had a fair, fairly deep interest in the, the geological world okay. just from living here. Right. Um, and, 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 and another uh, important uh, passion, I should say passion, but, but uh, when you're, you work on the farm, you look on a farm, mm-hmm. especially in the Keweenaw, uh, you sort of notice certain things. My father did. And uh, we had a cottage at Twin Lakes, um, and it seemed to rain a lot in Twin Lakes. And yet here are fields at the, up in the Keweenaw. Uh, would not get much rain, hmm. and and I always wonder why those flo- clouds always went south. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, then then learn through some I can't remember how, but you know that the, the back then we didn't have radar, but today you can see it quite clear. Is when you get storm systems coming across, they sometimes will split because Lake Superior affects our weather. Mm-hmm. And if you go to the tip of the Keweenaw, it's very very dry in the summer. And that's because the when those systems come from the southwest, they hit that cold boundary. It's like a hitting us thing, and they split. They mm-hmm. go south and they go north. And we'd watch for so we <laughs> we would end up having to irrigate our fields. And that was, you know, always wonder why that happened. <laughs> why we're sitting here watching the clouds go to the south of us, and and I th- I think most people that do a lot of uh, driving around the Kiwa or been up in the notice in august it's much drier in the up in the northern part of the Keweenaw, and a lot of that has to do with the effect of the lake superior i believe right um i'm not a meteorologist but yeah. <laughs> I, I, but those were sort of things that you wondered why yeah and so uh, that was a thing but i think i think the we talk about passion i i, I think i was very fortunate i i, I as a freshman um the uh, geology department at Michigan Tech had invited invited uh, a fellow by the name M. King Hubbard. Okay. Uh, very very famous uh, and uh, fellow who was uh, I think he had dual degrees in mathematics and geology or uh, maybe physics. I don't know. He's very well learned, very well um, credentialed fellow, um, and he wrote a very important paper. Uh, it's since been later uh, found not to be true per se, but back then it, it was, and it had to do with um, the amount of oil and gas we have in the in the world. And he was working for Shell Oil Company, who I went to work for mm-hmm. <laughs> eventually. But um, Dr. Hubbard um, had written a paper for Scientific America, and uh, he he. Um, he speculated that uh, the oil reserves would start being depleted. And, and ba- basically by the mid-70s, maybe a little earlier, that would reach what's called peak oil. 
And and I remember being a freshman just sitting there and sort of in awe at this fellow. Um, wow, we're going to run out of oil and gas. And Shell Oil at that time uh, had this sort of unique uh, uh, group uh, that allowed these these very high-level research to do what they wanted to do. Hmm. And so Dr. Hubbard did what he wanted to do, and he studied. We keep making big cars with... with uh, uh, big engines and you know the oil companies back then wanted people to, to spend i mean to to, to or, or to develop cars that use a lot of a lot of gas right and so he uh, ended up getting terminated from shell and which was a bit of a controversy mm-hmm. uh, but there was a very, very important paper uh what he what he didn't realize at that time uh was that um what we call technological innovation uh came in mm-hmm hydrofracking things of that nature had come in and 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 really changed the whole complex of how much oil and gas we have formations like oil shale and i was at shell oil company we looked at oil shale uh, mining um, and mining of oil shale itself extremely expensive back then in the in the, in the early 80s we we're looking at it, it was 60 to 70 dollars a barrel hmm. for oil well, then hydrofracking came along and, and changed that whole equation. But nonetheless, going back to uh, being a f- freshman at Michigan Tech and listening to this very, in my opinion, esteemed uh, 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 researcher, and I, I still impressed, I mean, even though he didn't recognize the, the technological innovation that was going to develop, uh, it, was a, it was a very important paper. Sure. And and that's one of the uh, one of the things that started uh, emphasis of trying to reduce the amount of or improve the gas mileage on vehicles and stuff like that uh, mm. sort of started in mid-70s if we reached peak oil well we didn't and we're not even sure where we are with that but um, anyway again back as a freshman I was like, wow that's pretty impressive like I'm a freshman I'm you know listen to this guy and I remember when running to the library and, 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 and getting Scientific American and, 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 and copying every page of it, very long paper, and reading the whole thing again. And, and I, you know, as a freshman, you know, it's a little odd. I, I, maybe I was a little odd, but, but uh, that really affected me. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, we all use cars. You know, back then, global warming wasn't, wasn't the issue it is today. Um, and, uh, um, it's just you know again you know that that was a a very um, um, you know important for kids at that early to start listening to learning things like that the the the, the thing about the, the geologic world is most departments are relatively small because they're small they can do a lot of stuff like this yeah. field trips and we had excellent faculty at Michigan Tech and and they did a lot of field trips Right as a freshman, we started going on field trips, and then you started to see this world, this world you never really saw, just the surface, but underneath how it's connected, how the Lake Superior Basin, you know, formed in the in the Protozoic period of time, uh, how we're tied to this what's called the Mid-Continental Rift Zone, mm-hmm. uh, back a billion years ago, uh, the North American continent. You know, they had this plume of mega push up in the middle, caused a big crack, <laughs> started down in, you know, uh, Kansas, Texas, whatever, came on up, went around, formed the basis of Lake Superior, went down, ended in the middle of lower Michigan. Hmm. 
and it was a big crack and then all these flood basalts started coming out and it started flowing out and and you see this picture starts emerging you're like wow you drive up to copper harbor and you see this massive wall of rock and you say wow that's a flood basalt and, huh. and then you're like whoa that's really cool um and and and, and they, they did a great job uh, back in the 70s i mean they probably still do I'm, I'm going back to the 70s of of building this 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 uh, or, or explaining this world to you and you can go out and see it the problem up here though is you have a lot of glacial hill here and it covers a lot of stuff so it's almost get to be like an investigative reporter here trying to figure out what the heck uh you know what's below mm -hmm. but once you get this regional model and you start putting the pieces together um and 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 quite honestly uh, i think most geologists would agree with this um there's quite a bit of the geology in this uh, especially the western part of the up we don't understand huh. and uh um, I um, was fortunate then to work for an exploration company as a student uh, out of Marquette, uh, a company called Exploration Incorporated. Uh, they were sort of affiliated with Longyear. Okay. Um, we, we worked out of the Longyear building anyway. And then I got to go uh, tromp in the woods um, for this company uh, in my summers. Um, I got to go from Marquette. Actually, I remember taking a... Uh, I would take soil samples to look for geochemical analysis, um, all the way from Marquette to Ironwood, hmm. and all the way up to Launce, all the way up to the uh, Huron Mountain Cl Club, roughly, Yellow Dog Plain, that's the area. Um, and that was best, well, didn't get paid much, but it was yeah. probably one of the best jobs I ever had it was in terms of fun. Right. Uh, here's a map, here's a four-wheel drive, here's an auger, here's a backpack, go. Unreal. <laughs> And I would go out, uh, they'd give me this area, and I'd be by myself. It's really amazing. I mean, I, sometimes I, I had a partner at one time. It'd be sporadic, but a lot of times I was out in the woods by myself. Yeah. And uh, you'd go on, say, off the, off the, the what we call the Skaney uh, 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 Road, Arvon Road. Actually, it's farther out. The one that goes towards the Yellow Dog Plains, and it'd be off that road. And Okay. Get your map. <laughs> you just start head in the woods. Get your backpack and uh, take soil samples, looking for geochemical <laughs> chemicals, that sort of thing. It was actually um, the funding of the of my work that I did. Uh, ironically, I found out much later was actually through a superior oil company um, had a very odd, I should say odd, but sort of. Um, eccentric uh ceo it was a family that owned it and he was looking for diamonds huh. and uh i didn't realize a lot of our work was not i always thought we looked for metals what we're looking for is is uh, tracers uh, of uh, very exotic elements that are tied to kimberlite dikes and there's still people looking for diamonds in the up yeah um but the glaciers came by and as they grouched out some of these dikes or kimberlite dikes or whatever was creating the, the uh, diamonds uh, would get spread across the country and so you start doing these trails and you can come to these there have been none discovered up here that I know of uh, but they certainly have found them in Canada uh, but it was the same sort of 
project they were looking for in Canada. And, and uh, But anyway, getting back to passion, uh, you know, you do all these things and you start learning these things. It gets to, gets, um, at least for me, starting from where I did, picking rocks up to this big regional global model of the world it's uh, exciting mm-hmm. and and know the question of like what were you thinking at a young age or even that this to find the passion it's not to take away from it but it's really to celebrate i think it's pretty cool that you it opens that world and you're like wow look into this this is really cool look at all these questions and uh, yeah i just think it's enjoyable fulfilling to live a life full of questions right you always have something to dig into and always have something to look into but taking you back to that gentleman the doctor giving that speech you said that really was impactful on you it was it it, it, it really was although i have to admit i was not planning to be a petroleum engineer by any means yeah Um, Do, do you remember was it impactful because of the uh like the call to fix this potential problem or impactful because you didn't it opened a world of uh, possibility for you like you never heard somebody else speak in this manner or know that somebody can research for to this degree and make these kind of uh, claims I guess I, I don't know how to quite make those two distinction distinctions but one being hey we're gonna run out of oil in 30 years and it's powerful because we need to go and chase and fix that or more so look at what somebody in a professional field can research and what they can do and how intelligent they are and i'm striving towards that does that make sense those two it does it does i i I think again um and and if i remember right this was in the fall my beginning of my (laughs) of my uh uh, freshman year so you know you really don't know much about anything Mm -hmm, right um i i think i think what it to me is that we assume we assume a lot of us assume things go on as they should always go on that they've always everything's going to be in this linear path yeah and all of a sudden someone threw a monkey wrench into that and said hey 30 years from now you're gonna be running out of oil and gas mm-hmm. of course of course from the climate change area it probably was a good thing mm-hmm. but um but it was a wake-up call and that 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 our understanding of things is not the way nature has it um and so it was it was i guess a wake-up call would have been what i would characterize it as back in yeah i was a freshman because we all had cars mm-hmm. and gas was dirt cheap uh you'd fill up we'd go and had a dollar and you put a dollar in your gas tank uh, you know, uh, and then you, you know, well, it's going to run out. Where am I? I'm going to go get from A to B. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Forrester Research interviewed 206 senior technology leaders in major organizations responsible for software development sourcing. 63% said their software development service partners do not have a full understanding of their end customer. If you're dead serious about moving faster and getting more done, Zeratech Software Development can help you move forward with confidence. Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help solve your problems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. As they align with their clients, they use a proven method to understand the scope of the problem and help demystify the steps to make it go away. They will deliver the software solution you need, and they do it with the integrity that you'd expect from a family-owned business in the heartland of America. Schedule a call with the team at Zeratech today at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C dot com. Okay. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Uh, And then taking you into the professional world. So you went through 
the, your bachelor's degree, who got your master's degree, and then went work for a short bit at this. What was the company in uh, okay, Centennial? Okay, so I, yeah, I, I got my bachelor's and master's at Michigan Tech. Right, yeah. And then I went to work for Shell Oil Company. Okay, and at, what was that at, like? Well, that was great, actually. I, I, I really value my time at Shell. Shell, you know, at that at that during that era, uh, there was a very anti-oil company uh, uh, type of... Um, attitude okay. um there was a book that uh, came out called the seven sisters and and i think it was seven sisters so seven oil companies how they were trying to um uh, monopolize uh, areas and 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 i just started for shell the first year i was there and there was a there was a um program by a guy named brian ross who um worked for nbc at the time and he he was putting these trying to show what these 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 monopolies that they were trying to develop and and he had claimed that shell oil had been trying to monopolize the oil and gas distribution systems in the east coast and 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 it was a um i mean it was a absolute uh, hit job mm -hmm. it was uh he had taken um segments of interviews with the president of shell oil company and cut it and spliced it and made him look like an idiot mm -hmm. uh he was condemned for it and fired hmm. um, but nonetheless that was the attitude of a lot of anti anti-oil you still have it today right oh uh, well, for other reasons though but it was a pretty anti-oil type of time um but working for shell um they're a very professional company and and they uh and, but starting at that time, <laughs> it was this anti-oil company was interesting. It was 1978, and um, that Brian Ross uh, article or issue with NBC uh, was right when I started. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I do remember this, and I, people laugh, my friends laugh at this. Uh, I had two what I call negative uh, 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 uh things I wanted to do, negative, yeah. uh, that things I didn't want to do. And the two were uh, not to live in a big city and not to work for an oil company. And here I ended up working for, going to work for Shell Oil Company in Houston, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> well, so much for never say never uh, uh, type attitude. Um, but, but one of the things that Shell at that time was starting to develop a mining program, a mining company. They wanted to be diversify as other companies were oil. Uh, if you, those of you old enough, uh, do listen to this. You remember some of the acquisitions. Uh, I think Mobile Oil Company bought um, J C. No, not J C. Penny. Monkey Ward. M Montgomery Wards. Sorry, we okay. used to call it Monkey Wards. Uh, Montgomery Wards. Uh, they were. Everyone was trying to diversify because again, that M King Hubbard made a big impact. If oil's declining, uh, we got to find something else to do. So. Hmm. One of the areas a lot of the oil companies decide to do is get in the, in the mining. And Shell had pretty massive plans to get into uh, base metals. Uh, they actually looked at, uh, uh, at that time, I don't think this is confidential, uh, uh, the White Pine Mine. They looked at uh, Cle Cleveland Cliffs Iron Company. They looked at a lot of acquisition potentials. I was involved in some of them. Um, uh, but nonetheless, the, I got on the ground floor, pretty much the ground floor of development of, of their mining projects. I ended up 
working in the in their in their coal division. Although I'd really had hoped to work in, as I said earlier, uh, uh, hard metal or hard rock. I call it hard rock metals, that sort of thing. But I ended up mm-hmm. in oil shale and and coal coal and and uh, actually oil. Uh, uh, I said oil shale, but but uh, we looked at gas deposits too that were in certain types of geologic formations. But um, we. Um, uh, we started there, and, and we had a, a general manager named, in fact, his name was Neil Isto, I-S-T-O, and I, and I thought, wow, I, Japanese fellow. I never, you know, so I had a meeting with him when I first started, and it turns out the Isto is Finnish, <laughs> and his parents migrated from the Houghton-Hancock area. Uh, when the mines uh, slowed down here, he went out to South Dakota to work in the gold mines. So his family was actually immigrated through Houghton and Hancock. Uh, so Isto somehow was a Finnish name. Huh. So um, anyway, he he was an amazing fellow to me. Um, uh, he, he he he. In our first meeting, he 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 looked me square in the eye and he said, "All right, there's two ways you can do work. You can run a company. You can do it by the letter of the law, or you can do it by the spirit of the law." Okay, <laughs> what the heck does that mean? Well, you know, you learn very quickly what that means. Uh, if you do your work by the letter of the law, you can get away with stuff. You you know, you're going to follow the route, whatever the letter. And if, you know, this is what you call loopholes. You find a loophole. They didn't cover this. Well, let's go. What you mean by the spirit of the law is you try to follow what the spirit of the law was. And at the time I started. Uh, President Carter had come in the, in the office and, and had passed a, 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 a major, major uh, bill that had been in legislature uh, for 20, 25 years. It was originally introduced by Morris Udall. Some of the folks that are, uh, know Morris Udall is very famous, very strong advocate for the environment. Uh, and and he, th- there was no... Uh, there were no uh, national rules for, for, for coal mining. Mm-hmm. And he had put together what's called the Surface Mine Control and Reclamation Act. And it was uh, vetoed by, I think, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford. Uh, finally, Carter got it, and he passed it. And it was a, it was a major paradigm shift for, for um, anybody in the coal mining business. And I just happened to start the day after the, the rules came out. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I, 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 you know, I said I've never worked for an oil company, never worked in a big city. Here I'm starting to work for Shell Oil Company. I got to go downtown Houston, a 48-story building. I'm on the 17th floor. I go into this office, no windows, just a couple file cabinets, a desk, nothing else. And on top of that was about an inch and a half thick set of regulations that had just come out the day before I started. And I remember they put three volumes of, uh, they had a mine project, and they had already submitted to get a permit to start this mine with these three volumes. And they had these three, they had those rules, and they said, okay, your first job, read through those rules and see if these three volumes meet the, those well, you, you might as well tell me run around the world. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 it was a new world to me. It was a total paradigm shift. It, it, it was um, f- finally they were forcing mining companies to actually uh, um, 
consider the environment in every aspect, the wildlife, soils, air emissions, everything. And, and um, I, I really had no background in that or any of it. I mean, and nor did any of my colleagues, by the way. So it was a sort of good time to start because mm-hmm. uh, we all were on a new trajectory for learning. And, and uh, I ended up becoming the environmental supervisor for that permit. And it uh, was done, I think we started in 77 before I got there. Uh, we finally got the permit in in uh, 1980. I believe we're the first ones approved under these new uh, national rules for uh, surface coal mining, um, and our permit uh, went from three volumes to 51 volumes, <laughs> and uh, I think cost us 4.6 million dollars back then. This was in 1979, 1978, and 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 as I said, almost all of it was was studies on how you. Are going to how are you going to affect things? How are you going to uh, make sure you don't affect things? Or are you going to maintain things? Um, you have many many rules that you had to follow: uh, water quality, air quality. Um, it, it was a phenomenal learning lesson. But Shell was a very good company to work for at that time because they gave me the resources. Um, but but going back to my main point that I got into this was: you can live by the letter of the law, or you can live by the spirit of the law. And there were loopholes that we could have taken, but we did not. Huh. Uh, we we've tried to follow what the rule, what the spirit of those rules were. Now people might be laughing, oh yeah, right. But we did. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't remember the way I said it. We did. Um, but anyway, it was a it was it was a phenomenal learning lesson for for eventually a kid still uh, to uh, have to find out what the uh, 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 stage girl select was. Um, I, that. Uh, finding the, the types, for example, when you're reclamation, you couldn't just simply put the topsoil back, throw some seed there. You had to put it back in native species. Um, how many people go around selling the seeds for all your native species in Wyoming? Right, <laughs> so right. it was a, it was, it was a. Uh, I think it's worked out well, though. I mean, beyond, you know, me not being there now, but but I I, I think the it was a very important. Um, set of uh, regulations to, to pass huh. and I think it was a very good thing but anyway uh, I'm, I've got a, a few... little off po- point here no you're doing good um, and I've got a few questions about that so on a personal level I lived out in North Dakota worked in their oil fields and I was going to school at Michigan Tech uh, so very connected to their shale portion that you had talked about mm-hmm. earlier and the fracking and all that kind of stuff um, but also uh, after that I did sales at a Chevy and Cadillac dealership out in Dickinson, North Dakota, and became intimately familiar with uh, guys older than me and before my time that loved 60s muscle cars, stuff like that, right? Uh, And then didn't care for the 70s and the 80s, probably more importantly, the 80s and 90s cars because they were these small little four-cylinder engines and whatever else. Did that transition from these cool, big muscle cars to boring 90s style cars all start from that original paper that that doctor came out is that all uh how the cars changed um i i i'd only base on obviously what my opinion sure yeah uh, i i think that that n kim hubbard's paper was a pivotal wake-up call that we could no longer continue uh, doing the things we were doing. Mm-hmm. Again, we at that point had not thought about global warming. Right. Uh, what we were worried about was the decline of from peak oil down to 
what would happen. And, and, and of course, a lot, you know, the Arab, we had the Arab oil embargo. You're too young for that. But I, I was, uh, well, that was my first year at Michigan Tech. And we, we stood in line to get gas. And, and uh, um, then, then when I went to work for Shell Oil Company in 1979 with the Iranian oil crisis, a lot of these international crises were, were really centered around uh, the fact that our oil reserves are declining and that a lot of what we thought was there was in the Middle East and created a lot of what we had happen. Uh, but I, th- I think, yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, Hubbard's paper was a, was a, what <laughs> was a pivotal paper. And I think it, it was a wake up call. And I, I think for a kid again, as a freshman at Michigan tech to get to listen to this guy, uh, was, uh, to me was, uh, uh very fortuitous, uh, pre- pre- prevent, um, uh, providential. I can't say the word, I guess, but you know what I mean. Yeah, for sure. No, I was just curious again. Did that spur the the change in yeah. the in the automobile industry? And oh, it, yes. as a as a yeah, right. definitely. This is where this is where Japan jumped in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of our first foreign car dealerships, and I I, I talked to um, uh, Kibuna uh, Automotive. Uh, can't think of the fellow's first name. Okay. Uh, uh, he worked, and he told me, no, there was someone else, but but there was a Subaru dealership in South Range. Hmm. Um, I don't, you probably never knew that. No, I didn't. Uh, no. Uh, yes. The, so a fellow named Carpenter, I believe, um, uh, started, heard about these Subaru cars and, and started selling them. And they were small, much, much better. You talk about four cylinders and no guts. The, mm-hmm. <laughs> these were, uh, 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 you know, they were b- boxes with wheels, but very good gas mileage. Um, in fact, I bought a 1979 Subaru, uh, when I was in Houston and we drove it out and it's before, before we engines improved and we had uh, injection mm-hmm. uh, systems, uh, went up to a, a mountain in uh, north uh, in uh, West Texas, uh, New Mexico, and, and it was twelve thousand six hundred feet, I think. Something anyway, we could drive up to it. And my wife and I were driving. We're it was a five-speed transmission. We're you know we're going turning up. We're in fourth. We're in fifth gear to fourth gear to third gear to second gear. Finally, we're about 11,000 feet. You know, my carburetor just couldn't handle. There was no air up there, hmm. no oxygen. And I almost had to tell my wife to get out. Uh, we were in first gear, and I was flooring it. We're almost to the top. Yeah. <laughs> so huh. we, we, we made it. But, but it, uh, it, it, uh, anyway, Subaru uh, came on. I think that's when uh, the Japanese car makers really got a... Uh, head up, head start on Detroit, and Detroit, as you know, went into a tailspin. You may not know, but uh, yeah, from back there, yeah. in seventy eight, seventy nine, um, it was who's going to turn their lights off in Detroit? Yeah, right. And then the other part too, you had said that you had started in the mine. It was the day after the regulations came out, um, and I need to even address this for myself because I'm getting the giggles, and I was drawing parallels between your life and my life. Is that was a a timing moment for you in your career. Uh, and my first day working at Slim's, 
I'm starting to get the giggles here. And again, I'll just edit this part out probably. But my first day working at Slim's was the last day you could smoke cigarettes in the restaurant. So. Oh, you Slim's up at... Uh, up in Mohawk. There, Mohawk. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. A little st- <laughs> I, I shouldn't... Yeah, I, I suppose podcasts you can yeah. talk about. Um, but, but I do a lot of... Uh, cons- or a fair amount of consulting work. And, and um, there was a, a tech student who went to work in California and, and got into... Um, uh, uh, underground excavation uh, and, and what you do, and this is a historical that's related to the UP. Um, so he had a project in which you, uh, it was the uh, Los Angeles Harbor, and they wanted to put a lower, a water line that was 60 feet in depth down to 100 feet. So they had to put a vertical shaft down 100 feet in sandy basic sand and salt water huh. and so what they did is they froze it you freeze it you make you freeze the whole thing and you auger you mine down the center of it because now you've got support from the frozen ground yeah and you go down and then you put the two shafts down there are two uh like fingers of sand that went out in the harbor that's why they made their harbor there's these erosional features from the from the mountains that above it the granite mountains of sand Anyway, so they built these docks and they wanted to, you know, lower the bigger ships come into these harbors. And so they were using this ground freezing technology and it collapsed at about 90 feet. And so I became the, they, they were looking for someone that would freeze these uh, sands and with ocean water. Hmm. And so they called me and I, I did the project for them and I ended up uh, going to Los Angeles for um, one of the depositions in the lawsuit that followed this collapse. And, and uh, um, I was invited out to dinner, and, and I was sitting at dinner, and this is, God, 80, something in the 80s, and just nobody's smoking. Hmm. Looking around, wow, this is, this is great, because I don't like smoking. And, and uh, <laughs> the guy said, yeah, they banned, Californians banned smoking and cigarettes much before yeah. Michigan did. Right. And uh, so I was saying, ah, and I went onto my soapbox and said, that's such a good thing. And blah. As soon as we got outside, both folks I was with had lit their cigarettes right. and smoking. <laughs> yeah, it was such a different world. I mean, people used to smoke and everywhere, but yeah, I just had to address it because I was getting the giggles again because thinking about your actual impactful moment and here's my meaningless last day you could smoke a cigarette at, at Slim's. Well, I wrote, I wrote a, a technical paper about the about the strength of, of, of um, um, the sand that was frozen with salt water and, and the idea in freezing it, they thought that the... the, the that the salt would get pushed up and you'd have fresh water. How does this relate to the Upper Peninsula? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there's two links. <laughs> and people probably know this, but if you don't, it, it, I guess it was, a, it was a, one of those eureka moments. Oh, wow, I never thought about that. Well, it turns out that, that, that in, this, in this project in which they were freezing the, the sand and hoping the salt would get pushed out because salt, it take a lot more uh, temperature, lower temperatures to freeze salt, mm. but that's not what happened. What happened is the salt just encapsulates, and you end up with salt modules, and it's but it's very weak, but it's very plastic, and and so freshwater ice is very strong. Saltwater ice is very weak. Mm. That's why you can have ice breakers on the on the uh, oceans 
that can break ice, whereas in the Great Lakes, it's much, much harder because the ice is much stronger. Hmm. Um, so that's one link. But the second link and the more interesting link is I started researching the technique of ground freezing for putting mine shafts. And it turned out that the first use of um, freezing technology to put a shaft through sandy, wet soil or with water, you know, over a groundwater table was at the Iron Mountain in hmm. 1888. The Chapin Mine, you may have never heard of it. No. Um, well, another historical note, this is my passion. Right, yeah. Um, is that uh, you go to Iron Mountain, you, US 41 and two come together, and you cross a lake. Do you remember the lake in Iron Mountain? No, I don't. I've been down there very little. That is a, that is a collapsed underground mine. That's the Chapin Mine collapse. Huh, okay. And then there's the world's largest Cornish pump was used to dewater that mine. That has a, that's a, has a, um, um, they've now made it a tourist attraction. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was, that's how much water they had in those mines down there. Hmm. But they built the original shaft or Chapin mine uh, using ground freezing technology in 1888. Yeah, what was the technology that in 1888? Okay, I you don't put know that... pipes, you put pipes down. Okay and you put refrigeration into them and you freeze the ground right and then once the ground's frozen once it's frozen you can uh, put a vertical shaft down hmm. and you support it and then you unthaw you let it thaw right and when you were in it you were doing the same thing refrigeration but maybe just more advanced refrigeration techniques or something like that or how would you well, uh, well first the germans came up with this okay back in the eight they knew how to refrigerate back oh. in and and they knew how to make compressors <laughs> they knew that if you use refrigerant and you had a compressor you could actually freeze things hmm. okay that they knew this the problem is the energy you need to to, to run these things um, but that technology today has been is being used extensively around the world it's very expensive but if you have sand you say 100 feet of sand and it's saturated right at groundwater's top how do you how do you auger through it mm -hmm. well freeze it <laughs> you can dewater it that's another way you can do it but um so anyway one of my passions too is the historical um uh, uh, the, a lot of the history of the mining uh in the in the upper peninsula of michigan uh, yeah so that's how i linked into a lot of everything seems to be linked in one way or another right uh, right and then but too with uh, you were mentioned the other day when we talked you get excited too from the history of the geological like how did uh, rice lake get formed how did these different portage lake canal not the not the digging of the canal but these different waterways and stuff like that does that all tie into the basalt yeah, it does, and the, it does, all in yeah. the glaciers and all that kind of stuff or can you touch on that some oh, i will i will I, I that's one of my research passions for my retirement is to study the uh what i'll call the deglaciation of the keweenaw okay uh, actually of uh, more of the of the upper peninsula of michigan um uh, that whole area of uh, falls into what we call geomorphology, and 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 that area of geomorphology is, is in a lot of geology departments is is they they typically it's not a big research area, and so a lot of the geology departments have actually been doing away with geomorphology uh, faculty. And so a lot of schools don't even have a geomorphologist anymore. Um, but back in, in, back in the turn of the century, 1920s, 30s, 40s, that was a big area. And two of the big schools uh, was University of Michigan 
University of Wisconsin, where it had really big programs in glacial geology. We also call it Pleistocene geology, hmm. which is the era, the geologic era in which the uh, the major glaciations occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our landforms are almost all created by glaciers here. Um, uh, the gouging of Lake Superior, the 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 the, the float copper you find in your floats, our moraines, our, our our gravel deposits are all glacially derived. Mm-hmm. So these two schools are really big, um, and there are others, but I mean, I'm just talking about the Midwest. So the University of Michigan really studied downstate and up into about Munising, which would have been the Michigan Basin. Mm-hmm. They studied the moraines, the uh, the um, uh, how the Mackinac Straits formed, which is another fascinating geologic mystery. We don't know why and how it did. Uh, some may claim they do, but it's still a mystery. Um, but they studied up to about Munising, and then Madison uh, studied Wisconsin up to Ironwood. Well, between Ironwood and Munising, there's been some studies, not like there hasn't, but a full explanation of how things uh, 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 formed here. For example, if you go to Antonagon, it's all clay. Well, we had mm-hmm. Lake Duluth uh, form, and that created a lot of the clay deposits we have over there. Marquette County's all sand. <laughs> you know, that's, again, it was how the glacier melted, how they receded away, and, 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 and there's some fascinating stories uh, from a research perspective. For example, um, there was a disconnect between the work in Michigan and work in Wisconsin, and it didn't correlate uh, from a from a from a, 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 a certain type of events. So the uh, you know they knew they had this one glacier that 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 moved into the area, then it receded, and then it removed back. It had a lot of this back and forth, but they couldn't tie it together hmm. until Cleveland Cliffs started building the Tilden, uh, the Gribben. The basin uh, for the Tilden mine to put their tailings in. And it's in a big sand area, uh, that's Sands Township. Um, and they started digging down, they hit a forest, a petrified forest. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, very crazy. And so, the, oh, well, let's take a sample of that and date it. Well, it turns out that nobody realized that the last uh, glacier uh, uh, that moved into the area, they call the Marquette phase now, and that helped tie everything together. It's hmm. called uh, Two Creeks. Wisconsin is where they tied the, their eras together. And, and uh, um, so anyway, there's a, it's a fascinating thing here. And as I said, all our uh, all of our surface expression is created mostly by glaciers. You know, yeah. bedrock, yes, but also glaciers. So um, um, it's uh, it's a fascinating area. And it's one that I, I've really been getting into. Right. Uh, and also, <clears throat> well, I guess tying into that, you said that you, maybe you even mentioned it was your own personal theory about the difference between Houghton and Hancock, that huh. uh, Houghton has a history and Hancock has its own history and the rock formations versus the bedrock. What was that you were? All right. So, uh, you know, all these can lead into very long explanations. Yeah, so, you yeah. know, hand signs work really yeah. well, too. <laughs> um and again, this is my own. I, you know, I'm not an expert in most of these areas. I, I have a, I have an interest. Yeah. I can't claim to be an expert in, in glacial geology per se, but um, so I've given a talk uh, to to some folks a couple times, uh, and I I, 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 I I titled it "Evidence for the Epic Portage Lake Flood." So anyone who's done any work in the glacial areas uh, understand that there were some massive flood events. Uh, Lake Agassiz 
uh, failed. It was a, it was dammed up by some type of glacial feature, and it failed. And it, it actually you can see it on the. If you go to Google and do a train map, you can see where it actually flooded all the way down to North Dakota, all the way, and a lot of that sediment actually worked its way down to um, the Gulf. Huh. Um, but there was a f- one flood that's th- the researchers now are looking at, um, and they've known about this, but they sort of as they get pieces and start putting together like this big puzzle, they start seeing a, a, a broader, more interesting uh, effect. And, and, and so one of the uh, theories that's been put out recently, uh, maybe more than recently, but um, is that that major flood that occurred, Lake Agassiz came through Lake Superior, and flooded this is fresh water mm-hmm. went all the way down through the st lawrence Slough out into the atlantic causing a change in currents hmm. and that was a major change in our entire climate of the of the northern hemisphere was this movement of fresh water into the oceans and this which are salt water and so that flood that came through here uh, has never been studied here and when you look at the the Houghton-Hancock area, you see rock on the south side and the Houghton side. And if you've lived in Houghton, it's mostly rock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're on the Hancock side, you've got hundreds and hundreds of feet of glacial till. You have Ripley Ski Hill, Hancock. Um, you, you won't find bedrock on this side. Mm-hmm. In fact, the two um, uh, supports, the main foundations of the Houghton-Hancock Bridge, um, and that's another fascinating story too that someday you should talk to one of my colleagues about who has a presentation on it hmm. is that the way they built those foundations is that they put sheet pile in the shape of the foundation they poured the foundation at the surface and then the access ports in the middle <coughs> excuse me and they are they dug down with with um with 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 a crane and Kelly bar, the pull of soil up, dropping the foundation. That's not on rock. Huh. Those two foundations sit on a dense gravel at about ninety two feet. Um, but sixty of those sixty feet were were stamp sand. And uh, you may know the story. As I said, be careful. You're going to lead from one to yeah, another yeah. to another. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, and and I'll, I'll I'm, I'm digressing here. Yeah. So bring me back uh, after I digress here a bit. Um, I'm currently the, the FEMA project manager for the Red Ridge Dam for fixing it from the Father's Day flood. Um, and there were five stamp mills built out on the uh, out on that side of the Keweenaw on the uh, Frida, Beacon Hill, Red Ridge area. And the reason they were is that in 1894, the Corps of Engineers came through and told Quincy and the uh, um, our oil mine areas, there was a stamp mill right on the, where the Houghton uh, chutes and ladders at now was a stamp mill. Hmm. And they were dumping the stamps right into the canal. And for, if you look at Ripley, all of the Ripley shoreline is built with stamp sand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ramada Inns on stamp sand, the, the three-story uh, apartment places is all on stamp sand. But they had to put support structures down to 60 feet to the, through the stamp sand. So that whole channel was being filled up with. So the Corps came in and said, January 1st, 1894, you gotta be out of here, no more dumping. So that's why they put the stamp mills out in, uh, in the Alden Gay and out at the, most of the ones that occurred in uh, uh, Edgemere and, and Frida and those ones were due to that. 
um, and that's why they were built out there. Um, so you have this again stamps, and so so the anyway the bridge foundations uh, they dropped it down, and then at some point they had to put men down there to auger. So they had to go through compression, just like going scuba diving. Mm-hmm. They had to go through the compression decompression chambers to, to to finally put that foundation down to the the, the dense gravel layer that it was placed on. Um, so. Uh, as I said, <laughs> one <laughs> yeah. thing's going to lead to another to another. So, um, so I'm going back to my evidence for the epic flood. Uh, I believe that uh, that flood came through here, and or maybe more than one flood came through here. Um, one of the other interesting issues is if you go out to Point Mills, um, uh, it's sand. In fact, uh, Michigan Tech investigated. Uh, putting glass factories out there uh, in the 1950s um, because there's the sand is so pure. Hmm. Well, where's the glacial? You don't have pure sand with glacier material. Well, it's got all wiped out. There's no, there is some out there, but it mostly has been wiped out. Mm-hmm. And so you start building, putting these pieces together and, and you also have the issue of isostatic rebound where the, the land is seeping upward to the Northeast. In fact, uh, you may be surprised to learn that the Ontonagon drainage originally went west, the Shankor River, and then down the Mississippi. All right, until it tilted enough to, to turn it the other way. Unreal. In fact, there's a wonderful uh, spot, uh, very great go-to, and there's the Yellow Dog Plains. If you've been out in the Yellow Dog Plains, the Yellow Dog River uh, originally flowed to the south side of the Yellow Dog and then down to the Dead River Storage Basin. But isostatic rebound was lifting it up. It hit a rock huh. and pushed it the other way to Big Bay. So the current drainage comes along this Yellow Dog Plains and then hits this rock, and there's a wa- there's a falls there, and then it now goes out to Big Bay, and it's cut through the sand plains with these massive uh, hundred foot slopes uh, that were cut over the last 5,000 years uh, in this river. So I'm I'm saying you can get really passionate about uh, looking at the the glacial features of this area. And and there's one of the most beautiful eskers uh, I've seen in the state of Michigan is in the Keweenaw and no one ever identified it. And it's, 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 it's gorgeous. What's an S curve? Oh Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Just to make sure I'm so let me give you a quick little geologic model. That's what yeah. I love about geology. You have to build these models. And that's, sure. as a freshman, you, that's what was so exciting was you're building this model of things you dealt with. Right. Picking rocks and field, finding flow copper, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, so what an esker is, uh, I can best explain by this model, and that is the first lake the, 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 to develop at the at the end of the glacial period when they were receding was called Lake Duluth. There were actually two Lake Duluths, but we'll just say. <laughs> so think about the Keweenaw Peninsula and go out to Keweenaw, okay? And on the west, on the east side was Glacier. Right. It went down in the Keweenaw Bay, and then on the west side was Lake Duluth. And now also imagine that it's tilting up to the northeast. And so Lake Duluth is now flowing under the ice into the east side of the of Lake Superior. Hmm. And so if you go up to the Keweenaw, you have these gaps, Ellaway Gap, 
is the real that you have the gravel deposit there right yeah yep. that's, that's because the water was flowing taking the sands away leaving the gravel and the rock huh. well that happened in other places but there's one in particular right past the, the turnoff to go to um lac la belle on 41 you're going to 41 yeah go past it okay and there's a little road it's a logging road you go in on that road, and but look on it. Look at it from a from a terrain map on Google, and you'll see what looks like a snake. Huh. And it looks when you're on it, it looks like you're on a railroad grade, about 50 feet off the ground. And so what that was, there's a gap right there, and so the water was flowing. So an esker is an underground river, and a, under a glacier that leaves a, a line, a snake-like line of boulders and rock. That's an esker, and there's a number of them up there. Huh. How, can you spell that? Uh, esker? You would yeah. ask me the worst spell in the world. E-S-S-K-E-R-E. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. I thought you said S-curve. S-curve. Okay. S-curve. And crazy part is I think I walked that ridge you last year. You probably did. It's beautiful. The road goes right down the top of yeah. it. And then what's really cool, and this is where you have to start dating, start age dating. The fact is the Montreal River flows around it. Huh. <laughs> So it formed, and then when the Montreal River, which is a very important uh, uh, geologic fe- or a geomorphologic feature on that side of the Keweenaw, and that starts explaining Rice Lake and 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 uh, um, um, the other lakes that are up there, and then you also see the the glacial isostatic rebounds in the in the sediments up there hmm. if you look at a map. Um, but anyway, you can build this all together. It's all sort of coming together as a big model. Right, right. So tying that back, or, or I guess we digressed into, yeah, the, so into the bridge and all that kind of stuff, but then back to the Houghton and Hancock side of things, again, you got the bedrock there and then the till here. Yeah, so so the idea is that a, that, that, um, a flood came through here from the north entry. Right. Came through and then hit around Houghton and washed, came around and took the sediments away from the Houghton side, and that's why the, 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 um, area that michigan tech is located is a boulder field yeah um and if you saw them when they built those buildings there they're just enormous amounts of cobble and boulders there well as that water was coming through there may have been a glacier left and it was still putting boulders but the water wouldn't take those per se they would take the sands and gravels Hmm. and then you move out south of houghton between houghton and launch bay very thin overburden. You're almost sitting on top of the Jacobsville sandstone. Hmm. Where'd all that go? Um, and so if you look at Keweenaw Bay, and again, this is this is all stuff I'm researching. I'm not, I'm just speculating at this point. Right. But there's a trough on the end, on the launch side, that fishermen know very well. It almost looks like all that, all that sediment got just flowed right into the Keweenaw Bay. Huh. Um, so that's the model that I'm, that I'm trying to, build evidence for right. and come up with a much better explanation of why we have lakes where we do and rivers where we do and and that sort of thing okay and this is all something you said you're not a professional on it's something you're just no, excited to hobby. dig into but if you have convincing evidence can you take it somewhere and have it be built within a body of literature or something like that well you know you you talk about passion i just 
I just want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, at some point you could write a paper and, and, and explain it. And, and, but I, 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 it's to my own satisfaction or understanding of what happened and how that glacier evolved. I mean, I'm going back to picking rocks in my dad's field. Right, right. Um, 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 how, why is it do we have these big rocks at the top of the, uh, in the, in the topsoil, and then right below it we have sand? Yeah. Um, so I'm not asking you necessarily saying, Hey, you need to do that, but I'm just curious on a technical level. I'm not familiar. Um, do you need to have a PhD in that field to have it be validified or a, like a peer reviewed paper or, you know what I mean? That's a good question. And, 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 uh, you know, I, it, uh, I think to publish at a, at a high level, you do need to be an expert okay, or work with experts to, to just be, my backgrounds, geotechnical engineering. If I wrote this paper and sent it to the to a major geological journal, um, uh, I would probably get shot down whether it was a good paper or not. Mm-hmm. I think there is some prejudice today against non-experts uh, trying to publish, and, I, I, and there's probably good reasons for it. For sure, right. but I, I I think if I were to want to take it to that step, but at being retired, I, I don't need brownie points for right. writing papers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't need to. I do plan to write uh, papers. Right. I'm writing a couple books at the moment. Huh. Um, but um, again, going back to it's my passion. I, yeah. you know, I just wanted to understand how, why'd that damn rock get there? Excuse me. But right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, no. I, because you have that unique thing, right? That you are asking the questions and maybe like you said, it's hard to define at seven to 10 years old. What were the actual things going through your head? But for sure it was deeper than me. I picked up the rocks and I said, I can't wait till I can eat dinner tonight. You know what I mean? I didn't think about where did they come from? Um, you have that extra thing. And then right now you're retired. You could easily just retire and say, Hey, I'm going to enjoy the golf course and call that a day. But you're digging into this super elaborate history of the geology and the glaciers and this flood, whatever else that if you're, taking it to that level even though you're not looking for brownie points is there like for the betterment of science or for the betterment of the field should you find a co-sponsor and 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 put that work out there i'm I'm going to say yes and the reason is i think that understanding what i'm going to call the pleistocene the fact that um something caused massive glaciation for about a two million year period um, something happened to our climate. What? What was that? We have the evidence. It's, it's actually in, probably in front of us. Mm-hmm. And even if a non-expert like myself were to look at it and say, for example, you've probably seen and people have talked to me about, uh, you go to any shoreline and you'll see a really black, grainy layer and it just sort of comes out and you, it's just black. Where did yeah. that come from? Why? Well, that has, if you notice, it's linear. One of my hobbies is shorelines, and, and, and the glacial shorelines are very obvious to some of us. Um, uh, the highest one is around 12,000, 1,200 feet, which Calumet, between us and Calumet, there was the highest shoreline, where okay. at the end of the, during the receding glacier, we were under about 800 feet of water because hmm. the glacier pushed the entire mass land down 800 feet. All right. So it's pushed down. Right. All right. It's still coming back. Okay. It's moving upward. We're still moving. We're still recovering from the glacial period. In fact, surveyors know 
that we have a vertical datum. Hmm. And that vertical datum is moving. And that's why you have to reset the vertical datum for surveyors. And that's why if you have a map and you have to be very accurate about your vertical, you don't go from 1929 datum or the 1988 datum, or you have to know what datum you're going from because it's gone up by about an inch. Other people don't realize the whole North American plate is moving to the West. (laughs) There's a lot of dynamic issues that that occur here. I once gave a talk about our dynamic Earth. Um, For example... About 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, there was a small little earthquake down near Stevenson, Michigan. You may you may not have heard of it, you no. heard of, but there was a couple in their house. They heard a loud bang, house shook. What the heck was that? They went out back of their house in the woods. It was a big crack in the earth. Huh. Where'd that come from? The ice, the, the, the crustal stresses are still relieving themselves as that we're moving isostatic rebound as the land mass is still moving up. Mm-hmm. We're, re, we're coming into an equilibrium. We're not at it when things are moving. <laughs> right, right. And so we have these very minor earthquakes. There was a fascinating historical study about the uh, French uh, and Ontonagan. They were on the Ontonagan River, and it was 17-something, and all of a sudden some thought there was a cannon or there was a massive boom in it. Everyone heard it for the whole area, and it turned, they still don't know what it was. Well, it was probably one of these near-surface, small, you know, reestablishing the equilibrium of the movement of our mass going upward, Um, which could lead to another whole big area of uh, things to look at uh, in this area beyond glacial geology. but we won't go there at this point. We have time if you want to. What? Oh, no. <laughs> well, I, 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 I've been fortunate to have done some work in the White Pine Mine, and that's a fascinating... Uh, uh, people, most people, even civil engineers, don't realize that when you look at the earth, you think, okay, as you go down vertically, the stress gets higher and higher and higher. What people don't realize, and they didn't learn till sometime into the mining of the white pine mine is that the horizontal stresses were much higher than the vertical stresses. Hmm. To, to a lay person, that may not seem much, but it was a very important finding at, for the white pine mine. And there was, a, there was the head of rock mechanics at the time, Jack Parker, who's passed away a couple of years ago, and he was a brilliant, brilliant geologist, mining engineer, and, and he started putting two, to, two and two together as to why we're having these these failures in the mine and and he realized um from some work done in canada that it was this horizontal stresses once they understood that they were able to redesign the 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 drifts at white pine to minimize the uh, amount of roof collapses right um so we have these very high horizontal stresses in our in our crust here in the north uh, and the UP, huh. and uh, almost three times higher than the vertical, which, again, most most people wouldn't understand quite what that means. Yeah. Civil engineers who are even ge- geotechnical engineers would be shocked at that Okay, because in soils, it's the exact opposite. The, the vertical are much higher than the horizontal stresses. Right. Uh, but anyway, it, ha- it matters, okay? Yeah, right. <laughs> it matters. Um, so um, I said the UP, and go back now to my young days, 
this is a real fascinating area to live. Yeah. Uh, we have all the major rock types. We have glacial to make it all a myst- mysterious, uh, cover all the geology, the bedrock. Fascinating geology. Um, it's a very unique place to live. Yeah. Yeah. When you, and we can talk back on, on the UP side of things as well and in some of that stuff too, but when you were working at Shell and then you eventually went to teach, was teaching part of your life plan or is that, how did that come to be? Oh, another interesting question. Um, I, th- I think when I, I got out of my, doing my master's, I think I always had the thought of going back, um, getting a PhD and get into teaching. Okay. Um, but once you get into the world of work, engineering, you get a family, uh, those thoughts pretty much dissipate mm-hmm. um, rather quickly. Um, but then in, in the mid-'80s, uh, as I said, Shell had a strategic planning group and one of their jobs was to look into the future look at commodity prices uh, coal oil gas copper iron and in the mid 80s oil dropped to about ten dollars a barrel Uh, gas got very cheap Uh, copper um, had dropped from a dollar fifty a pound down to fifty cents a pound that's where white pine had the uh, had trouble economically Mm. Um, but they looked at it in the mid eighties, they looked into their crystal ball, I call it. Right. Uh, and they, they saw basically very flat commodity prices for most metals, uh, copper, uh, coal, whatever. In fact, I, I gave you action numbers. Uh, when we started our coal mine in 1981, uh, we were selling a ton of coal for $6 and, uh, 50 cents. I'm sorry, sorry, back up. When we signed our contract to produce coal in 1978, it was $6.50. At that point, during that time, you could put real price increases into your contract. You, mm-hmm. could, you could go to the governmental indexes and say, okay, labor's going to go up by this. So whatever the government says this goes up 1%, 2%, you can increase your price to, 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 to the utility. Um, and that's how we signed it. By October of 1981, getting back now to inflation, that was that was our heavy or our big inflation years were back in 1978, 79, 80. Um, the inflation had brought that price up to $11.81 when the mine opened hmm. in October of 1981. All right, so I mean that was a that was all inflation induced. Right. right. Uh, over two and a half years. Uh, so we started the mine. We had we were selling about 4 million tons a year at start $11.81. Uh, again, going back to the crystal ball, Shell looked at this because uh, they had other mines, uh, but what they saw was decreasing costs, de- de- decreasing oversupply, demand not being there, prices going down. And they showed level to basically no recovery and coal would keep going down, copper, iron, all these would be basically level. So the mining industry really crashed mm-hmm. in the mid-'80s. And if you look at the the demographics of, of mining company personnel, there is a big gap hmm. in personnel. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal uh, in knowledge. You need to have a continuous stream of people to fill in as people retire. Nonetheless, Shell looked at it. They said, hey, nothing, it's, it's flat. And by gosh, they were right. <laughs> Uh, so Shell got out. Uh, they closed down most of their operations. They shut down all their exploration. 
and then I sort of 90% of us that got laid off mm-hmm. had something to do. So I said, well, I guess I'll go. There's no jobs in the mining industry. I might as well go get a PhD. And so I just said, oh, I'm going to switch to civil. Yeah. Um, went to the University of Michigan and got my PhD. So yes and no. I, I, I you know, I thought I'd want to be a, you know, an academic, uh, leaving my, when I left school. Um, I think a lot of people actually think of that Yeah. or it's not all, but some, uh, but then some of us are forced into it. Mm-hmm. And so I went that path and ended up 31 years teaching. Yeah. Right. So I guess that was the question there is that I remember you saying earlier, the circumstances, them shutting down, that's what got you into it. But did it feel like that was just a matter of time, whether it was then or 10 years later, you were eventually going to get into the, the teaching in the academic world? Um, well, I, I, as I said, I, I, I think I started thinking, oh, yeah, I'll work for a few years and maybe go back. But once you get yeah. a family and you have a, you have a house note and, and kids to college to pay for and all that stuff, uh, I, I think I pretty much said, no, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. stay working until, you know, you know, life intervened and, and, and reality intervened in the mining industry. And, um, and I ended up going back uh, to get get my PhD and get into the academic world. Yeah, and was that what you expected? The teaching side of things, you did it for thirty one years. Is it was it way more rewarding than you expected, or was it very fulfilling? Or, or can you, yeah, what was that like? I, I, I um, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 it's it is very fulfilling. Um, but but I think there's also a very selfish side. Okay. And and that selfish side is somebody who just likes to learn. Yeah. It's a great place to be. Sure. <laughs> You're learning. Uh, teaching, on the other hand, uh, you know, it's something you have to do, and sometimes you, you look forward to it. Some days you don't. But I have to admit, I I felt myself more interested in the the learning side because it was like she's like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. Store. You know, you can go any which way you want. There's no corporate strategy that says okay we're this is our strategy we need to move this way you're pretty free today mostly to move in the directions you want to do as an academic and and i was able i took advantage of that i think i did Mm -hmm. Um, but i did enjoy teaching i I think things change students change you change uh sometimes they change in the right direction sometimes they change i think it's getting harder uh to teach today um in my opinion um, I think COVID has had a major impact on 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 on, on students. Um, the one thing you noticed right away after they came back off of uh, being online is almost a total lack of interaction. Hmm. Um, for, again, I don't teach a philosophy course. I don't, be, you know, a government course, a political course. You know, where you really need to have that discussion, interaction. I teach engineering. I teach soil mechanics and rock mechanics and foundation design. And and, and the students, and again, is it me changing or are they changing? I, I think it's both. Sure. But I, I do think that students now have gotten much more passive. Right. Uh, and, and more simply tell me what, what you need to tell me. Okay. And, and, and I think there's been a lot of negative effects from from online yeah, you know, uh, uh, texting and 
TikTok and all these, <laughs> which I'm not a member of any of them. So don't look for me. Uh, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not anything. But um, there, there's a really strong resident, resident I can't even say the word anymore. Yeah. My, but uh, students not wanting to, to say anything. They just huh. sort of sit there and very... Um, like, and, and, and that's very frustrating for me. Yeah. Uh, I'm a very more participative talk, discussion. I digress a lot. I used to get, you know, I was sort of known for my stories. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'll hear that. In fact, if you go to um, um, uh, rate my professor, uh, I think I've got 10 or 12 reviews there. Mm -hmm. That used to be, a, I, I really sort of disappointed in that uh, rate my professor um, it started out really good, and, and a lot of students were participating. I think it was biased to, to stu fa faculty that are very good. They mm -hmm. get very good, and then faculty that aren't very good. Got the ones in the middle sort of were sort of left. But nonetheless, you did get feedback. And then it just sort of, students just stopped, started, stopped um, uh, uh, providing input to that. Mm -hmm. And so all these comments are back from the 1990s. <laughs> And yet the students today read them and say, oh, okay, I'm gonna take this professor, I'm gonna take that professor. You know, it's, but anyway, getting back to my main point, I'm again digressing, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a changed world. And, yeah. and, and uh, I'm not sure that I would, at this point in time, go back into the academic world. Yeah. I think it's a much harder world today, um, research. And research is important. I, I think research is extremely useful, and, and it keeps that learning, that that understanding going. Uh, but it, it also there's a there's a balance, mm -hmm. and, and and everyone knows it, and everybody says it, but it's still there. <laughs> right, right. You know which side your bread's buttered on when you're in the academic world. Research funding. Yeah. Um, uh, and 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 I sort of you know, you talk about passion. Um, in, in in a way, uh, the academic world allows you to pursue that passion, but only you're only going to be successful if it aligns with with an area that has that's that's of of, of has a f funding source or has potential for funding or has people interested in it uh, uh, or has some contribution. Let's say climate change or. Something like that, but if you're, you're go back to geomorphology. I've been mm -hmm. talking about it. When we started. There's no interest in it. Right. So if your passion is that, you're gonna have a hard time. Yeah, you're gonna because you're 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 gonna have to um, you to get tenure at a university today. You need to have publications. You need to have funding. But if they they will understand it. if their area does not have much funding. You know, they do take that into account, but then they expect the publication. Well, publication and funding are sort of tied together. Um, so it's, it's a, it, as I said, if you're in, a, in an area that's hot, that's got a lot of funding, climate change, I mean, my gosh, uh, you, you're, you're gold. Right. Uh, but if you're in a, one of these fields and that's where your passion is, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah. So right. that's why I think it's gotten harder for, for faculty to... Um, to, to, to be an academic. Right. No, it seems like it's a common trend, uh, the, the struggles of today, right? And is it, 
I'm just thinking about coaches. I've asked some coaches about what do you think about going coach today? And they've had similar, similar responses that it's just hard today. Things are changed. People are changed. Parents are different. The kids are different. Um, and I, I think that it's gotta be rooted in truth. Right. But also maybe the people change as well, but how do you like, how do you get out of that? How do you get the kids engaged? How do you have them be, take responsibility? How do you have them? Uh, although I also live in this world where I sometimes think that you can, you can have both at once. Like, of course you do, right? You have the exceptions and the extremes on both ends of the spectrum, but you, out of this mass of disengagement, you'll still have those kids that are crazy engaged potentially or no, or does it feel like it's pretty much a mass thing that this two years of living online has made just a huge, huge impact. I'm talking to myself in circles, but I'm just exploring that no, whole. I, I think we've all done that. And I think we've all been in that circle. We are all in that circle. Right. And I think we all understand it, uh, and, but we don't know how to adapt to it. Or, I mean, let's go back to what I started with. I was a kid growing up at Quincy Hill as a young kid. You know, my mother was a night supervisor at St. Joe's Hospital. So my mother would come home you know we're still alive breathing mm -hmm. um and sleep all day well as i said we just went out had a group of friends did what we wanted to do mm -hmm. go in the mines go in the go in the old mining buildings go in the woods build shacks as long as we're home by dinner you're okay right Th those days are gone yeah we now have the helicopter parents yeah um and you know, we're afraid. We're so afraid of so many things in this world today um, that we're preparing to protect everybody in every which way. And and some of them are obvious and, and good and you should do it. But, you know, I think that balance is, you know, not there. Yeah. And we're, our kids are not experiencing freedom. I, 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 I haven't seen this Netflix special. I don't, I don't belong to Netflix, but I heard about it. It was a, it was a, a movie or a Netflix, I guess, movie or whatever you call it, of a, uh, in Japan of a, a following a little four-year-old kid. And apparently the mother sends the little four-year-old to the grocery store. Yeah. And it goes by himself and goes, gets the stuff. And they're filming this. Mm -hmm. Now, it tells you something of our society today if uh, a, a movie made of a an independent four-year-old doing things that we who are now i'm 68 would have not thought two, twice about because right. that's what we how we lived yeah. you know making that movie in 2022 uh tells you something right right there's i've heard of that a gentleman that sends his kids out to get groceries and, and run errands in new york city same thing uh, young kids go out in the streets that most parents would never even dream of. But you talk about running around, building forts, doing this and that. That was my life too. Growing up as a young yeah. kid, I mean, we'd, I'd bike to friends' houses, leave in the morning and not come back till night. Or my dad would make rounds at my friends' houses trying to find me or whatever it was. And uh, that just inspired a life of uh, adventure, in my opinion. And that's what inspired, like, I'm all about adventure and, and having, like, going and seeing these things and being curious and digging into things. And I, I, I may maybe exaggerate when I said I never thought about the rocks. There's certainly my whole life I've been inquisitive. Why is this that way or why is it that way? And I think it stemmed from that freedom to just go and jump in ponds and swim in rivers and throw rocks and do whatever that like you said maybe isn't there as much today 
Yeah, yeah, and, and that, I'll go back to what I also said, and you said, and I, we, this is a unique place. Yeah. It really is, and, and it's sort of unfortunate that we do restrict our children if we're growing up here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'll tell you a quick little story, too. I digress. I apologize, but I, I went to a workshop out in uh, Colorado, and uh, went to a place called Pingree Park, which is owned by Colorado State University, and it's about... 10,500 feet up in the mountains. And there's a short, small glacier up at about 12,000 feet or maybe a little higher. But nonetheless, we had a uh, uh, Wednesday of the week we were there. We were free to go and do what we want. And they gave us a map. So a group of about 15 guys decided to hike up to up to the top of this little plateau where this river came out of the glacier. And then it was a waterfall sort of down. It took about two hours to hike up. It was 95 degrees. Hmm. It was the middle of August. And you had this river coming, flowing, and we're all hot. Mm-hmm. We just hiked maybe two, maybe a little longer. 95 degrees. And I'm, so there's 15 of us, all guys. And got there, and I'm looking at this river. It's, wow. Well, I took all my clothes off, and I jumped in. Yeah. <laughs> the others were horrified. Yeah. They would, in their wildest dreams, have not thought about jumping in that river. And they had every reason in the world why you shouldn't jump in this lake. And the first one was snakes. Right. Well, what elevation were we at? <laughs> There's no snakes up here. Yeah. Besides, this water is too darn cold. The, yeah. Anyway, my point is, is, is it's, it's interesting. I think my growing up here... Um, growing up here, um, just that's how you were. I mean, that's how you grew up. And, and I didn't think twice about it. Right. And, and yet there were 14, I think there were 14 guys who were just like horrified. Yeah. Did you get any of them to hop in with you? No, nope. not one of them would come in <laughs> me. And then the, the sort of end that story, we, the, there, if you looked on the map, we went, came this really roundabout way up there. I said, you know, if we go down the creek or down this river and cut over, we'll, we'll cut off an hour. So three of us did. Right. And, and we're cutting down. And, and the two other two with me were really nervous. But I said, we can't get lost. Right. We're in a valley. Yeah. There's no way to get lost here. And yet, yeah, and so we got back. We were there at least an hour and a half before the others got back the huh. other way. Um, but that adventure that that willing to take risks that sort of thing i think grew out of my background growing up on quincy hill yeah i'm sure it did yeah. yes i'm sure yeah it, it um, um anyway but even to tie into that so i do real estate right and I, i'm saying how can we fix that how can we change that through doing real estate you end up talking to a lot of people about what's important to you because they're moving they're changing life changes are coming here from out of the area or moving from in town to out of town whatever else so you end up talking pretty in-depth conversations about like what are you looking for out of life and where do you want to be and what's important to you it does seem like there's like a counter or a, or a pendulum swing back where i have a lot of people that are looking to raise their kids in a country setting and let them get dirt under their fingernails and go running and be free and do that because they see how extreme it has gone in the other direction so i wonder and it seems like that's a big thing, at least here. I, I see it all the time. Um, I wonder if that is that pendulum swinging back to be more on the other end of let's disconnect. Let's not have as much of this online style of, of life. Um, 
and become more curious and more engaged. Do you think that, do you see that at all? Or do you? I, I, I do to a point. I, 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 um, I have a, uh, a white birch tree in my yard and it's so quite old. It's quite big and it's got nice branches low and kids have climbed it since I've lived in this house for 28 years. Yeah. And last year, a young little girl came and asked me if she could climb the tree. And I said, certainly. But, you know, I'm thinking liability, mm-hmm. my insurance company. But when she climbs it, her mother's there. Right, sure. You know, and I'm thinking, my God, when we were, I was that age, we were, we were building forts in those trees. Right. <laughs> you know, yes, I, 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 I would like to agree that it's changing. Sure. I think it is in some areas, but. But again, what percent? I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, it's 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 um, um, going back to teaching that you sort of see that kids unwilling to take risks, unwilling to answer a question. Yeah. Because um, they, and I can see it. I mean, they they I ask a question and and they they give an answer and it's wrong and the next thing you know in text hey you seen so and so made a fool out of himself answering that question right well we can't live like that yeah unfortunately uh, yeah that's part of it too hey that pressure but no i'm a, I, my wife and i we got three little ones and i think about that all the time my oldest the other day i see her out with her cousins out in the woods same thing try not to be a helicopter parent but there's a party that i just went out and peeked and checked on them and they're climbing up this old rickety ladder way over the edge no support and i'm like i need to walk away because they're learning right now but if i'm involved i'm gonna be telling them get out yeah. of there you know what i mean so i i did walk away but it's hard not to become engaged and but yeah there's a ton of growth that happens just let them explore and let them do that yeah, you know, I, I growing up again, going back to my farm, growing up on my dad's farm, we were a potato producer, and we would obviously plant our potatoes, grow them, and then harvest them in the fall, and we'd put them in a warehouse. But you never really sold them until March, April, and when everyone else sold ours, we're the end of the road sort of thing. And and and, but I I do remember what we'd call processing the potatoes, put them in bags, and all that. And my um, uh, I shouldn't blame my uncle but he's you know if he saw you you know lifting something bending over the wrong way with not using your legs uh he didn't tell you he right. came and kicked you in the butt yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was a rude awakening but you learned not to to lift things properly right um so you know we did learn things uh uh not i mean they were going to make it the hard way yeah <laughs> instead of just telling us they they let us know no in certain terms that's really stupid you hurt your back right but i that's one of the i remember that the the most is make sure you lift a potato 100 pound potato bag you're using your legs not your back yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i wonder if that's the i said how can we fix that i wonder if that's the fix is just stop being a helicopter parent right that's part that's a huge part of it um you before we got on at one point you were saying that my cousin jared was in your class i wonder if my brother zane was too or anyways uh growing up we would my grandpa was a thimbleberry jam maker and he'd have the relatives we'd go out young kids i I don't remember what age you'd start but either way fairly young kids and we'd go in different places berry picking drop you off and you'd just go i mean it was up to you you would you could be down in these little crazy holes and canyons and hills and whatever else and it was up to you to find your way back to the truck or back to the road that you were on and that same thing it just you had a ton of freedom it was up to you wherever the heck you want to go and and just really i think that was part of it too it just garnered that whole sense of uh, a responsibility 
keep track of where you're going, but be just adventure and that whole side of things. I, th- I think so. And, and, and the other thing is, and I'm guilty of this, I, I doing too much for your kids. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just, I, I had two daughters and they'll, they'll you know, if they're listening to this, <laughs> I can pick on them. Yeah. My daughter did a Ted talk down in Wisconsin and, uh, we went to it and I turned out, she used an example of me, uh, buying a present for my wife for Christmas. And, it was a vacuum cleaner and she yeah. made the point of that, that that dad that wasn't probably a good idea yeah. <laughs> but but um i sometimes caught our, myself um my daughter one of my daughters i won't say which one you know needing to go to college and fill out these forms well i end up filling them out yeah you know my other daughter was like had it all done you know but should have i done that yeah right. <laughs> well it was financially important for me to get her faster whatever that form was sure. in um so i did it right. right i i you know that sort of thing too you know we i think we tend to and, and you know kids working it's probably a good thing yeah um you know par- parents don't want their kids to have to they want to have fun all summer well we had fun all summer but we have worked a lot during the summer too yeah you know, being on a farm again, you had umpteen things to do. But we had a lot of freedom. We had a lot of time on our hands too. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The uh, I think that's my takeaway. Again, just reminding. I've I've thought about it frequently. We've talked about it too. But just and, and there's no sense. I don't think in looking back on your life, saying trying to scrutinize how much, or even me personally. I mean, I got four years into this how well did I do in this moment or that moment, but just moving forward, what can you take away from it or what can you learn to, yeah, let the, let them be independent and go from there. But the other thing, unless you have anything else you want to touch on there, I was going to ask you the, uh, the Agassi Lake, I've heard of it and it flooded and you said it flooded all the way down into the plains and Dakotas and whatever else. Is that why I swear? And maybe I'm making this part up. I swear when I'd be out hiking or hunting in Western North Dakota, I'd find like, uh, shells, like seashells and stuff. Is that from that? Or maybe I'm making that up. Uh, It could have been, um, uh, I don't know how far west uh, you were, and I don't know how, but it did go through north. The Red River Valley would be the epicenter, if okay. you will, of the of the of the flood event. But there were a, a number of major flood events. Okay, um, it, it's fascinating. I mean, they're they're dating these things. They're they're getting a lot more understanding. But um, yeah, the the, <laughs> I mean, they've found float copper in Illinois, huh. so um, it's 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 a fascinating thing and i said look at a map look at a terrain map uh look at lake agassiz well you know the michigan tech research vessel is called agassiz mm-hmm. yeah. the, the agassiz and um, another quick little story since you're from the calumet area and again i assume this 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 may only be a white uh uh uh, 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 uh um tail or whatever they call it uh not true but um there's a statue of agassiz up in Calumet, the, mm-hmm. that park, and apparently, when 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 uh, I, I don't I don't know if it was when the park was setting up or what, or I think it was when Calumet Heckler was shutting down, that um, that statue apparently was owned by Harvard, and they called Harvard up and said, hey, "Do you want your statue?" And they said, "Who is it?" Well, Agassi. Well, apparently, he wasn't high enough on the 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 ladder to to um, to um, the to pay the money to send it back to, 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 and they had enough statues or whatever. But Agassiz is extremely important for the beginning of of the study of uh, glacial geology. Okay. And the idea came um, 
back in the, the original Agassi, not not his kids that worked at Cayman Heckler. Uh, this is the, the dad, the, the the first Agassi. Okay, um, was the one that was in Austria and started to recognize these. How do we get these odd boulders way up on top of the mountain? And they're called erratics. We call those erratics. And and uh, the idea was Noah's flood. Hmm. Well, okay, that's possible, but. When they, they they had no idea that that they had these continental glaciers, and Agassiz was one of the the main characters in the history of the development of glacial geology was Agassiz, hmm. and I say that because Agassiz's came ended up his kids ended up here, his right. kid ended up here to run the Captain Heckler mines. Yeah. Uh, so wait, the Agassiz statue is the gentleman that was about the glacier the, the, side, not yeah, the, the glacier side, not yes. the mining. His kids, yes. okay, Louis Agassiz. Huh. Okay, and that's where the football field's named after where I played yeah, football or whatever else. Yeah. So, so there's an interesting connection with with Lake Agassiz out, in, and he came from Austria to the U.S. and then started working at Harvard as a professor. Yeah. Very eminent. Actually, he's got some very interesting connections with. Um, I have to stretch my memory now. Um, Agassiz had some. I, I have to. I, I'm, it's it's his name will pop up in sure. other areas that are interesting. Uh, but he was a um, he was a geologist. Okay, and um, came to Harvard and helped write some of the modern develop. I should say some of our modern geological understanding. Yeah, you're saying it's, the gentleman you're trying to think of the name of or Agassiz went to Harvard. Oh, no, no, Louis Agassiz, the first Agassiz, right? The, the, the guy that came from. Uh, uh, I think I think Austria. I could be wrong. I think it's Austria. Came to the U.S. as a professor. Of okay, Harvard. I got gotcha. you. His son was the one that was running the Captain Heckler operations. The right. one that then hired McNaughton. Sure. And McNaughton's got a fascinating history too. Hmm. Um, he he grew up in Calumet as and started working the mines as a water boy, and worked his way up, and then ended up going to the University of Michigan to get his engineering degree. Came back here, and then. He was appointed by Agassiz to be the superintendent of a number of these mines here. Huh. Um, so, so, and my connection with McNaughton is that my mother was a nurse. Uh, she grew up in Calumet, and she was the night, uh, the private nurse the, uh, when he passed away. She okay. was there when he passed away huh. in Calumet. I think it was 1949. Okay. Um, and, and to tie all this together yeah. uh all these connections yeah right no so i just had a gentleman jim Enrietti. do you know jim he's a 90 just turned 97 today world war ii veteran jim uh, jim Enrietti. Oh, i've heard his name i've heard his, i heard of him i i don't know him yeah so he was a world war ii veteran uh tail gunner on a b-24 bomber in world war ii out of mohawk or that's where he grew up as mohawk but when he came back at one point he worked security for the mines up here and one of their jobs was to protect the statue of agassi and he said the young kids would douse it with paint and they'd have to go and clean it up and get them whatever try to protect the statue and the, anyways tying that into what we were just talking about kids being adventurous and rebellious and whatever else is the kids at that time one of their things would be to douse the statue of agassi with paint and he he was the part of the security to prevent that well, yeah. well that that brings me to the to my my um mother's mother um sister um was a, a married uh, Sincock, who was the manager of the facilities for Cayman Hecola. And I'm a member of the Skinny Club. You may not have no. ever heard of the Skinny Club, but it's an Italian club in Calumet. Yeah. 
um, uh, 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 a number of the Italians up there, Tomasi and and Viro and and um, um, uh, Negro and and uh, uh, our members of the Skinny Club and, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we were just discussing one day after one of our dinners and and. Uh, you know, oh, well, when we were kids, we used to try to break into the such and such, but Sincox. I said, well, that's my uncle. Yeah. <laughs> he was my uncle. <laughs> so it's a lot of connections up uh, here. And I, I, one of my other little genealogy things of interest uh, is my grandfather came from Italy, as I said, and uh, worked in the Wolverine mine, but didn't like it, and then got enough money to buy a bar in Lorium. And so I'm, I'm researching where that bar is, and someone said, "Good luck." Yeah, <laughs> there's quite a few bars there in Calumet and Loria. Uh, so that's uh, another little research or connection that I, I'm, I'm, I'm going after. But um, right, no, it's all yeah, it's all good stuff. Again, it's uh, interesting to hear about the trajectory. I always like that. What's the, what's been your life trajectory, and what did you expect? What did you anticipate? How was it different? Um, how did that change you? How did that shift you? And not that we needed to explore all those topics, but to me, it's, I don't know, for some reason it's fascinating just to know yes. how that all plays out and why that played out and what it meant to you and all that kind of stuff. So appreciate you laying that out. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. And, and, uh, if you ever need me back, let me know. I might have to correct some of the, some of my things, but I, I think I'm generally mostly said what I thought was right. Yeah. And we established, like you said, some of these areas are stuff that you're just a passion about it's not your field of expertise and so i mean at that point it's yeah things you believe to be true but it's i i think you should pursue well you do whatever you think is best but i think just for the the benefit of science you should pursue that if you come up with something or you're you're breaking ground on the, the you know the geological history of this area that you should pursue well, some of that well well just let me say before we end here i you'd ask me about you know publishing and that sort of thing um we're learning more and more about how our environment works. Okay. It's very important. I mean, it's extremely important. We have a lot of uncertainty in, in, in models and predictions and all this stuff. And they're important because they affect all of us. Mm-hmm. But I do have this strange sort of idea or I thought that there is something here, right here in the good old copper country that's gonna, that we just didn't see. Hmm. But if we saw it and we understood it, that maybe it might help us understand something on a more global hmm. air, air, uh, type scale. You know, I, I, I just have that, that strange idea. Maybe it's, you know, being a little overboard. But, yeah. but I, I, I do think that, you know, this, this, our, our rock is here is a billion years old and, and you know, a lot of things happened between then and now, but the, the, the glacial period um, was a, a very dramatic change in climate. And I just think that there's stuff here that if we just understood it more, it might help us understand the whole global world right. uh, better. And, and are, are you saying on any potential level or even like on a, you talk about global warming and stuff right now, are you saying that yes, the, the, the quick changes then could teach us about what we're going through today and give us better models and better yes. predictions. And, yes. Okay. You know, I, and the reason is, I think, um, is that we have such a vast variety of glacial features here. Um, 
just okay i'm going to digress one more time yeah go ahead you got time. so you may not remember but about 10 or 12 years ago there were these uh, silver lake storage basin failed hmm. um i don't know if you remember no, that I don't. or not yeah. uh, it was a mother's day flood and they had just re had just upgraded the um, dam there and put in a new type of uh, spillway. It was an emergency spillway, and for whatever reasons, I don't, I don't, I'm not involved with how and why, but it didn't work right, and and the dam failed, and so you had a flood go through the Dead River Storage Basin, wiped out a lot of docks. It wasn't tremendously expensive, um, but it was multi-million dollar damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so it emptied that basin. Well, I got a call one day from the U.S. Geological Survey. I said, hey, we're, we've got a group of some international people. We're going to be going to the Silver Lake Storage Base, and you want to come along? Said, yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they were looking for was something called the Sudbury Ejecta. Okay, well, we know Sudbury, Canada is a major meteor impact zone. That's how, on the horizon, we have nickel mines in Sudbury. But the idea is, is that when it hit... The meteorite had shot all this rock out into the into the into the atmosphere, and that rock came down and then got incorporated into the sediment that was here. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, there was this layer, this Sudbury ejecta layer in the in the uh, Silver Lake Storage Basin that had been below the water level. And so the belief is that that rock got shot three to four hundred miles from Sudbury. Uh, here. Hmm. And so my point is, is you, you have all these geologic things that happen and leave, they leave evidence. And so it's being able to identify that evidence and try to build it into a model to have a better understanding of, for example, when I talk about the glacial job, the climate, what was happening. We understand a meteorite hit, hitting Sudbury and shooting rock over here. That's pretty, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and we can find evidence for it. Um, I believe there's evidence here for a better understanding of what the climate was doing and why we had these dramatic changes in climate. Yeah. For example, all our sand dunes that we have up here actually were created during an extensive drought that we had here. Um, That's why we have massive sand dunes in in Lake Michigan and and all around the Great Lakes. Right. And it was a period after around 9,000 years ago Whatever happened, and it was, had been, might have been due to this, this flood into the oceans that changed all our circulation patterns, that created massive droughts here, that created the, the desert conditions, that created the sand dunes. <laughs> so there's... Yeah. Never ending, eh? No, it's never ending. It's a, it's, and that's the trouble. If you're a kid in a candy store, you never become an expert in anything because you're too busy going off. Uh, oh, that's interesting. You go off in that way. Then you find this and you go that way. And then you go from geological to history and you're looking at the mines and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. But what a fulfilling way to live just to be, well, ask I think those questions, yeah. right? Yeah. If you're going to live up here, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's sort of like, a, as I said, a kid in a candy store. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome, Stan. Really appreciate you coming okay. on and breaking this all down. Yes, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, happy to do it. <laughs> hey, guys. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have and you feel so inclined, share this podcast with your friends, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and give us some feedback with a review. 
Until next time, thank you.